information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Podcast with Dominic Frisby, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money Podcast, hosted in association with Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, I'm sitting in London in the garden of the Troubadour pub stroke restaurant in Earl's Court in West London. And sitting opposite me is the trader Michael Hampton, trader and author Michael Hampton, I should say. Mike is based in Hong Kong, but he's uh, visiting London and it's uh, great to catch up with you, Mike. Um, now, in the last program I recorded with you, we, we talked about your view on markets. But in, in this program, we're going to take a rather more philosophical angle. And um, we want to talk about currencies. Uh, I, th I think we are both agreed that some kind of currency crisis is coming. It's something that I talk about in my book, quite how that crisis is going to manifest itself. Um, nobody's sure. It could be a horrendous deflationary bust. It could be a hyperinflationary crack-up boom. Nobody really knows. Um, but, but you can't go on debasing money in the way that it's being debased. These are some of the issues that I address in my book, so we're going to talk a little bit about my book as well. So why don't I hand over to you, Mike, and, and, and you kick things off, and then we'll have a conversation going from there. Yeah, I, I think actually this is a very interesting time to be uh, exploring the idea of what makes a good currency. Um, what we've had uh, in the past, up until now, served us pretty well for certain years. It's probably not going to serve us nearly so well in the future, and it's beginning to uh, fray at the edges a bit. So uh, I think the fact that you're writing a book uh, which looks at this is, is very timely. And I'm very curious. Uh, the book hasn't come out yet, and so I haven't read it. Uh, I've seen uh, a clip on YouTube which has some very interesting uh, hints about what's in the book. So I thought it would be interesting to have a two-way conversation um, to hear a little bit more about the ideas that are going to come into the book and also talk about the larger topic of what makes a good currency. Well, my one of the big themes of my book is that I can actually find an argument that many of the problems that we have in the world, particularly the this skewed distribution of wealth where we have this incredibly rich 1% and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I posted a statistic the other day that the richest 400 people in the world have assets um, equivalent to the poorest 140 million. And I thought that was, a, that was actually a statistic from Jeremy Grantham, the fund manager. And somebody picked up on that and said, no, they don't. It's much worse than that because there are more than, there are X million people who have negative, uh, negative actual worth. And I think of students with a load of debt, and no, no assets, people with huge mortgages on their house. And, and um, the distribution of wealth is a major problem. To me, that is entirely a consequence of our system of money. And, and wealth concentrates around those that have the monopoly on the money, those that have the power to issue the money, um, and those furthest from the money's issuance um, are the ones who suffer the most. And, it, and it, there's this kind of cycle that compounds over time, and which is why that 1% get richer and richer and richer, and the rest of us fall further and further behind. Well, we certainly saw that in the last few years, when after the crisis of 2008, the first reaction of the political uh, authorities was to look after the banks. And the banks got bailouts, and the banks got loads of money from the Fed and from the Treasury. And um, 
the individuals who had the debt problems themselves, um, they got very little help at all. So um, perhaps that was the 1% looking after the 1%, which is part of the problem. Another problem that is entirely, in my view, a consequence of our system of money is the fact that governments have got so big, they've got very invasive. You know, there's a kind of slightly religious uh, belief in amongst certain people on the left wing uh, that, you know, everything governments do is good. And I happen to think, for example, that if governments had a, um, didn't have this monopoly that they have on money, not only could they have never grown to such size, but things like World War I could never have happened. The Vietnam War could not have happened. I mean, they would have happened, but not to the same extent, because, because governments didn't have the gold to pay for them, and they only paid for them by taking their countries well, off. Well, I'm trying to remember what that famous quote is that, um, that uh, about um, how um, governments will... Uh, will I think it was Margaret Thatcher that said it, is um, that governments will go on spending money until... Um, the problem with socialism is yep. that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. Sorry, that's, that's exactly right. I think that's, I paraphrased it a bit, but anyway. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the quote I was trying to remember. And I suppose the problem with that is that if we see how the money... The governments now control the amount of money that's in circulation, and they basically control who gets it. So two types of uh, people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum tend to get it. The 1% and the bankers tend to get it on one end. On the other end, a lot of money tends to go to people who uh, haven't got anything, who then are using that money to pay their bills, and they're using that money to live. And basically that money is bribing people to vote for the socialist governments. Well, uh, in my book, I do a case study on the city of Glasgow. And the city of Glasgow's history is just amazing. Did you know it was regarded as the, seventh, the second city of the British Empire? Um, at the turn of the century, in 1900, it was the fourth largest city in Europe. The wealth in Glasgow, it was wealthier in, in relative terms than Singapore or Hong Kong is today. Um, and the reason that Glasgow enjoyed such wealth is, well, there are all sorts of reasons, but it began... Um, in the 17th century, I suppose, because if you caught the trade winds, the first place you arrived in the UK was, was Glasgow, and it had a, a two-week advantage over the rest of the UK, and it used that um, first mover advantage to become a trading hub. And yet, when locomotion arrived, you know, you would have thought Glasgow would be put out of business, but it wasn't. It, it, it remodeled itself, it became a shipbuilding centre, and, you know, by in 1900, I think something like 25% of all um, locomotive ships in the world were built in Glasgow. I mean, that is a huge um, proportion. And it's gone from basically from 1911, but really from 1914 and the, and the First World War, from stupendous wealth to just being the kind of the capital of everything that's wrong with the welfare state. It's like it's, it's got the highest... Un I mean, there are some parts of... Um, Glasgow, there's some regions of Glasgow, some districts, I should say, where something like 65% of kids grow up in families where nobody in the household works. It's the obesity capital of the UK. It's the murder capital of the UK. Um, the life expectancy has the lowest life expectancy in the UK. It's the unhealthiest part of the UK. It has, it's the crime capital of the UK. You know, all these terrible statistics. And in my book, I actually put forward the argument that I mean, it, it sounds extremely tenuous, but hopefully when you read 
each argument in each stage, you realise that it's actually, uh, I put it down to being, a, it's, it's, it's a consequence of the welfare state not actually helping people, uh, as it's intended to do, but actually harms them. So even though the government has, is giving people money, what's happened is when, when people are being given money, the kind of helpless um, demographic expands and the, the, the helpful, if you like, demographic contracts because they're having money taken away from them. And so you kind of... Well, this, this is a problem that um, one of the two candidates in the U.S. has fingered, which is uh, um, Mitt Romney has talked about this a little bit in a very clumsy way, unfortunately. We're saying we're, that 47% of the American voters might be inclined to vote for his opponent because they're receiving a lot of money from the state. Yeah. And unfortunately, it seems to be easier for some politicians and maybe some parties to rely on the fact that people who are net recipients of, of wealth are inclined to vote for the party that's happiest to give them more of, of what yeah. they haven't earned. Um, well, um, well uh, Mary Somerset dis Webb described um, <laughs> the lead up to uh, elections as a, a welfare arms race. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good way to look at it, is the more extravagant promises a party can make, the more likely it is to get votes yeah. from certain parts of the... Of the, uh, the problem is that uh, I suppose an economy can afford that to a point, but when a majority of people are relying on the state to give them what they've got, yeah. then the state is probably in a very unhealthy situation economically. The, the, the big theme of my book is that it, it's counterintuitive. You know, people think if you're right-wing, you can't be socially conscious, but I actually regard myself as extremely socially conscious. But one of the conclusions that I've come to is that the best way for a government to help people is not to. Yeah. I mean, you know, for example, the National Health Service, given, you know, it's, it's sacrosanct in the UK. You cannot criticise the NHS. But, you know, the, 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 if you look at the cost of the service it delivers, it's just way too expensive for what it is. And, you know, healthcare has become more expensive, and it's even worse in the States. You know, every, the cost of everything else has fallen. You know, you know, medicine has improved in quality. We are way more productive. We have more medicines at hand. We have greater expertise. The cost of healthcare should have fallen. And I'm, I honestly believe in a, in a genuinely free market, it would have fallen. But in fact, the cost of healthcare is just stratospheric, and, and it's it's almost going to topple the government if you if you look at the numbers. If they didn't have the power to run up deficits, it would topple the government. Well, I think this is one of the big challenges of our time: is to wean people away from their dependence on the state. And it isn't just the uh, the, the people who have less money and are relying on on uh, the state for for benefits. But it's also the other end. A lot of the people who are wealthy rely on the states as a customer or to yeah. protect their businesses. And the, the real loser um, in that sort of dumbbell um, model where the, the, the poor I, benefit I get, I get, and, and the, the wealthy energy. benefit is the middle class. And, and, you know, I think that this has got to be the time when, when politicians have got to start refocusing on the middle class and giving them a better chance to to uh, improve themselves and their, therefore and thereby improve the overall wealth of the state because it's the fate of the middle class that really matters, isn't it? Now, it, it, it absolutely is. And Now, in my opinion, you can't just disband the NHS or whatever government initiative it, it, it is. But what, one thing you can do is take away their, their monopoly on money. And so a big solution to this mess that governments have created is is my theory of, of of having independent money now 
Can you explain what that is a bit more? Well, at the moment we have this we must use um, government money as we must pay taxes in government government money and and in in the states you actually have to affect all transactions in US dollars here you can actually use um, other currencies but you have to translate that into pounds for the and pay the appropriate taxes um, but you know I had to transfer some money to Brazil because I went on holiday there and it involved I don't quite know how that is, but it involved three different banks, and it involved some money having to go to New York. It was just unnecessary, and, and every time some money went, a bank took $50 or something, and by the time the money had reached where I had to go in Brazil, uh, it was it was just a headache, and, and, and you know, a significant um, a bit of that money had been sliced off the sides. In the modern world, it needn't have been that expensive to send some money from one country to another. Well, part of that's the lack of competition amongst the banks. I mean, I read something yeah. interesting in the paper today. But it's that, also uh, to do with national currencies. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that, yeah. but I just wanted to point out that this morning in the paper, there was a story that Virgin yeah. uh, might be buying, I think it's 167 branches of RBS that they're being forced yeah. to sell because the Spanish bank, Santander, uh, decided not to buy those, and now Virgin wants to buy it. So, let me just be clear here. Are you talking about having more competition in the banking sector, or are you talking about something else? Well, I'm talking about both. I'm talking about you know, I like the idea of metal, gold, silver, copper, nickel, being stored in vaults all around the globe, and it's basically the gold money model, um, where and then ownership of that metal changes hands. You know, when you click pay on your app or on your credit card or whatever means of payment you're using. Now, if that had been, if I'd needed to buy what I needed to buy in Brazil by that method, it would just would have been, it would have been, there would have been no. Forex, no, you know, how many, how many kilos of copper for that do you need? Ten kilos of copper, boom, it's done. And um, obviously, it's more effective with gold and silver because they're much smaller, so the storage costs are lower. But that some kind of, you know, global metallic money. The other beauty of global metallic money is hard for people to print. <laughs> so you know. Well, it's very interesting that, because... So that, that would be one independent currency. I have never bought a Bitcoin. I'm a bit, I, I, it's one of those things I keep meaning to do so, you know, just on principle, really. But I've just never quite got round to it. But, you know, Bitcoin, I, I don't understand the algorithm that, that whereby Bitcoin is created. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assured that it's, uh, that it's legitimate. So, you know, Bitcoin is another independent currency. But I think and, that whatever you know, currency you have, Bitcoins. you need some backing for it. Because yeah. um, partly it's a question of confidence. Yeah. And the other is if the currency starts to get wobbly, as we're seeing in various currencies now, um, there's a way of taking that wobbly currency and transforming it into something else, whatever's yeah. backing it. So if you have gold backing, then you can convert it into gold and you could take it to another country, yeah. which is less wobbly, and spend it there. Um, so you probably need backing for the currency of the future. Yeah. So you're talking about backing it with something different? Well, I don't think a gold standard... I mean, gold standard is kind of partially independent money because governments tie their money to gold, which is independent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, gold standards always get abused. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when it suits the government, they just come off the gold standard. So it's not purely independent. But uh, so I'm less talking about... I'm, I'm talking about... One form of independent money is metal. Another form is Bitcoin. You know, if, if some institution, if we follow Hayek's um, book on competing currencies, the denationalization of money, you know, any old institution can, can issue any old paper. And But if the marketplace decides that they're happy to use that as money... Do you mean like Ron Paul's idea of competing currencies? Yeah. 
I, I suppose I do. The, the, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in, in the power of the free market and the free market, you know, comes up with natural organic solutions to things rather than having in, in, in impose on you. And if you suddenly, you know, had some kind of monetary turmoil and it was left to the free market to sort it out, I imagine that the first port of call would be to start using metal as money. But once you've settled into some kind of, well, once you've settled, I imagine that, you know, more elaborate forms of money would start being offered into the marketplace and some of them being taken up. Do you, why don't you outline Ron Paul's current competing currencies idea? Well, I, I, at its most basic level, he'd like to allow people to use not only dollars in settling transactions in commerce in the U.S., but also gold and even other currencies as well. And the idea is that for some reason people don't want to store their wealth in dollars, they can store it in gold and use that currency for, for, uh, for, for their businesses and for yeah. their economic transactions. The, 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 there are two problems. It's firstly, there's the logistics of, say, you run a shop and, you know, you people are offering all sorts of different currencies you might think it'd be a, a nightmare but um and i suppose it would if you ran a new news agent or something where you you're you know turning over tiny transactions but i was recently in istanbul and you know i walked through the grand bazaar there and the people there will take dollars euros turkish lira they'll take pounds they'll take russian rubles they'll take anything as long as it means there's a trade for them and you know the services of Dominic Frisby are available for hire as a voiceover comedian, podcast presenter, writer. You know, they're available in pretty much any currency you care to mention. Can I pay you in renminbi, Chinese renminbi? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a... Th th one of the problems with paying me in renminbi is that I don't have any plans to go to China anytime soon. And banks in the UK make it really difficult to open f current accounts in foreign currencies. You can open a US dollar account but you can't have a debit card or a visa card. And you kind of think, well, why, why, why do you make it so difficult? Surely in this global marketplace, we should all have US dollar accounts with, with you know, visa cards on them. And so, you know... Well, I wonder if, if you had competing currencies, it would be a little bit like competing stocks, where at any particular time, one stock, uh, Google, for example, might be in favor and going up a lot. And then the year, the year after that, or two years after that, it might be Apple, another currency going up. Yeah. So people might shift back and forth from one competing currency to another. I, I guess they would, and I, I suppose they, they already do to an extent with national currencies. But the, the point is, we need currencies that, that, are, that, are, that are international and non-national, if that makes sense. Um, the, the big issue comes with competing currencies is, is in tax. Because, you know, government wants payment in its national currency. Now, if its national currency is totally devalued by the presence of other currencies, then then how does it levy tax? Well, that's that's true, uh, and I can see that as a problem. But if the currency loses value, then the tax collections in that currency are going to be losing value as well. So, I mean, I find it quite interesting in China. We have a situation where the government has suggested to people to buy gold and silver because they want their citizens to preserve their wealth better than in storing it in other, in other places. So maybe there would be a benefit to the state in a way where their citizens won't be impoverished by a, a, a currency that suddenly loses value because some of those citizens will have kept their wealth in gold. So maybe that's actually a benefit to the competing currency, the, 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 the fact that people don't store their wealth in a single currency, the pound or the euro or whatever.
Yeah, I mean, I've got mixed feelings about the Chinese government because on the one hand, you hear pronouncements like that. They, they encourage their citizens to own gold, which sounds absolutely sensible. And you wonder why every government doesn't encourage it. Although what business is, is it of a government to start telling people what to own? But then you see some of the crazy planning that's gone on, you know, the empty cities uh, and, and the malinvestment and 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 also some of the horrendous corruption there is at kind of almost every level in china and well in fact i think the problem in china is that although um people do st st uh, store wealth in gold and silver most people in china actually store wealth in property so if they have a big chunk of money as they do in the uk yeah they'll go and buy property and one of the reasons the government was trying to get people to use gold and silver was to get them to put a bit less of their wealth into property because prices have become really very high and it's a it's it's become a dangerous thing and perhaps in the UK as well especially in London uh, there's too much of, of the the country's wealth in China and maybe also in the UK is stored in property yeah it can become dangerous so I, I think this probably raises the question of backing because if you're yeah. talking about uh, competing currencies. Um, gold, obviously, gold-linked currencies are backed by gold, but what else might you back your currency with if you're going to have competing currencies? Well, you're asking me, and the answer is I don't know, but I think you've got an idea. One, one idea that's been kicked around a little bit, but not fully developed, is the idea of backing up uh, a currency with something other than a dead asset like gold. I mean, gold has lots of virtues, which you've defined quite well. But one sort of non-virtue of gold is the fact that money stored in gold is fairly sterile because gold itself doesn't do anything yeah. but, but retain its form, which is one of its virtues. But also it doesn't add to the productive wealth of the, of the country. But if you store wealth in a business or if you store wealth in a income-producing property, in some respects you're storing wealth in a productive place where it can help the economy grow and maintain its stability. So one idea that I've seen kicked around, and it needs a lot more development than I can possibly give to it right now, would be to actually store wealth in, uh, in equities. So you might have, for example, a currency whose value is linked to the S&P 500 or the FTSE 1000, and then people who are putting money into that asset effectively are putting more money into the stock market where it can help generate wealth for the country. Okay. I mean, I like that idea. I think, like you say, it needs a lot of development. So it's probably, you know, the first phase, if you like, of the new currency era might be metal. And what you're describing might come in further down the road, perhaps as the economy is expanding a little bit more. Um, one of the problems with that is it does seem to encourage... Uh, it, well, it encourages investment, but it might also encourage malinvestment and excess speculation. It, 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 certainly, there's a risk of that. And, you know, when money floods into stocks or floods into property, you do get malinvestment. So that would be a very important issue that the makers of a new currency would need to consider. And I, I don't know exactly where your book's going to be on these solutions, whether it's going to propose solutions, evaluate them, or maybe kick off the debate. But I think a debate about the issue of what makes a good currency is very timely and very important. And that's why I'm really glad we had this conversation. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been great talking to you. And, and just to, to kind of answer your question is, I've written the first draft of the book and um, I'm now in the rewriting phase. But the, the main theme of the first draft of the book is more about the, the wide range of 
damage that the existing form of money has done and how that damage has manifested itself in all sorts of peculiar and unexpected ways. Um, and I, my main kind of scope, if you like, was to was to highlight that to people and show it to people. So alternative explanations for existing problems. Um, but I think it's important to have a positive message to say. And I must confess, I'm a little bit, I've been, a, I've been, I've taken the approach that, well, leave it to the free market to sort it out, which is, it's an easy argument to say. It's, you hear people touting it all the time and it, it, it's an easy, it's easy for me to say that. I'm, I'm really looking really forward to reading market. your book and, and learning, you know, and, you know, perhaps more detail than I thought about what, what the problems are with the currency. And, and I mean, we can see them every day, but the deeper reasons why we have problems with, with our yeah. present currency system. And then maybe... I mean, maybe, I even link our current system of money. Not, I, I link it to wars, obviously. I link it to the welfare state. I link it to the malfunctioning health service. I even link it to um, the uh, rape of the environment. You know, and the... That's ex very interesting. Well, I'm because I'm our system of money creates expectations excess speculation and malinvestment which leads to the overuse of resources and i don't think we do live in harmony with our environment anymore and we need to and you know i'm, I'm not necessarily uh, a believer in global warming or anything like that but when i see swathes of forest being cut down or beautiful rivers being polluted you know it makes me want to despair well that's that's great i mean i think that you know if we do um as a society and as a global society move on and start thinking about how we might redesign our currency we should need to understand very clearly what the problems are with their existing currency and that's what your book apparently is going to do is to give us a pretty good sense of what those problems are yeah well mike um we're going to wrap this up it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and thanks for kind of talking to me and asking me some questions and uh, um if any of you are interested in the book uh it's you can find out more on the website unbound i'm published publishing it by crowdfunding and uh i think it's pretty much already funded but you can still buy the the advanced copies um, i'm at 77 percent as we speak uh, but yeah the website is unbound.co.uk and the book's called life after the state and i'd recommend that people have a look at your very interesting video which uh, sort of introduces the book uh, can you tell us how to find that um well that's on youtube uh, again just look on the page on uh, look on the unbound link and it's all on there all right mike hampton thank you very much pleasure john Subscribe to the Gold Money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles, videos, and iTunes podcasts from our Gold Research section.